I'm Megan. I'm Christy. And I'm Auntie B. And we are Homebrew Murder Crew. Hey guys, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. It is November 22nd. It's definitely it is definitely not the November. <laughs> it's, it's December 22nd. Oh. Okay, you've got the date wrong. You've got months wrong. Wow. You guys, it is the 19th of December today. Correct. But when our listeners are listening, it's going to be the 22nd of December. Too oh, okay. Not November. Oh, not October. Forgive us. We've been bottling wine. Yes. yes. We may have been testing out the wine as well. Yes. Quality control, you guys. In case Absolutely. anyone was wondering, it is delicious. Perfect. It is great. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it is just days before Christmas and we are going to do something a little bit different today for you guys. So we're going to bring you a little Christmas special. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're doing like a 12 days of Christmas. Yeah. Yes. Crime. So true crime. We've got 12 shorter true crime stories for you today. And that, tomorrow. And tomorrow. That all happened around Christmas. Yeah. So we're going to bring you six today and we're going to bring you six tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, yeah, buckle down, grab a glass of nog and um, add some rum if you must. Get yeah. your chestnuts roasting by that open <laughs> fire. <laughs> Wiener, ho, ho, ho. Jack Frost oh. nipping at your nose. Right. Also, like, side note, I'm so excited for bacon rack chestnuts. Oh, me too. Yeah. All right. It's, so, yeah. Well, we're going to get right into it yeah. today. Here we go. Yeah. So, I guess I'm starting. Hey, everyone. Auntie B here. I'm going to start uh, the 12 Days of Christmas True Crime with the unsolved disappearance of the Sodder children. It is Christmas Eve, 1945. The Sauter family of Fayetteville, West Virginia, are enjoying their holidays at home. Before I dive into this case, I want to introduce you to the family. The Sauter family is made up of Father George, Mother Jenny, and their 10 children. Everyone lived under the same roof except for second oldest, son Joe, who was actually fighting in World War II at the time of this incident. Hmm. Living inside the Sauter's two-story timber frame home are George and Jenny obviously. George Jr., Maurice, Louis, and their daughters, Marion, Martha, Jenny, Betty, and Sylvia. Sheepers. Yeah. That's a lot of they, J's and M's. <laughs> they were busy. Also, they've got a nice 50-50 split. Five boys, five girls. Perfect. Yeah. You know, they rage in eight, like, rage, rage, rage. rage. <laughs> they range. Their age ranges, is what I'm trying to say, from two to, like, 25. It's mm -hmm. Christmas Eve, 1945. Oldest daughter, Marion, returns home from working. She brings home presents for her brothers and her sisters. Five of the Sauter children are so excited. They're even too excited to think about going to bed. The five children, Maurice, who's 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 10, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 6, beg their mother, please, please, please let them stay up past their bedtime. Jenny decides, since it's a special occasion, that they could stay up a little while longer. Mm -hmm. It's Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Let the children stay up. However, they did have to take care of the farm animals, turn out the lights, close the curtain, and lock the front door before they went to bed. Marion stays up for a little while with the quintet, but eventually falls asleep on the couch. Mm. I mean, she did work all day. Okay, <laughs> so it's early morning december 25th not a creature is stirring not even a mouse Ooh. the phone of the Sauter residence rings jenny gets up to answer it on the other line is a woman and it kind of sounded like there were several other people talking behind her in the background this random woman asked jenny for someone jenny didn't know she told this random woman that she had the wrong number the woman laughed strangely and quickly hung up Jenny stood for a moment there, puzzled, I think, as we all would if we got a call like that at yeah. 1 o'clock in the morning. Uncomfy. Mm -hmm. oh, like, what the hell was that? <laughs> but her attention is quickly grabbed by something else that's strange. The house was eerily quiet. 
However, the lights were on, the drapes were still open, and the front door was unlocked. She specifically asked the kids to make sure that they did all of that if they were going to stay up past bedtime. Right. Frustrated, she just does it herself and goes back to bed. They probably just forgot with all the excitement going on. She presumed that the five children who had stayed up late had just forgotten. She closed up the house and returned to her bedroom. She falls back asleep, only to be woken up again around 1 a.m. from the sounds of something landing on the roof and then rolling down alongside the house. All of a sudden... Santa! Waking <laughs> <laughs> into my house. I'm the worst. <laughs> no. Uh, also, all of a sudden, she starts to smell smoke. So she shakes awake her husband, George, who's asleep in the bed next to her. Mm -hmm. They both manage to gather up the four children that sleep close to their bedrooms. Uh, however, they can't seem to get to the attic. George, Jenny, and the rest of the siblings try desperately to reach the children once they are outside. The following truly believe what happened next was intentional and not a coincidence. George first tries to find the ladder normally resting on the side of their house. He never moves it. However, this night, it's no longer there, oh, and he can't seem to find it anywhere. I don't love that at all. Also, I did a little bit of research into this, and eventually the ladder would be located yeah. a block down the street from oh, yeah, I think yeah, it was like in a ditch that. or something. Yeah, yeah like in a ditch, It was ditch, just yeah. discarded on the side of the road or something. Without his ladder, George has another thought. Maybe he can move one of his trucks to the side of the house where he could stand on top of it and help reach the window to the bedroom of the five children. Smart man. But he tries to start his truck and it won't start. That's just another thing that's gone wrong. Which, and this whole car not starting, truck not starting is weird because he uses them on a day-to-day. -day, the previous day, no issue. Right. Started just fine. Coincidence? I, I think, think not. not. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> All their surviving members of the Sauter family could do was to watch the fire ravage their home. The fire was so strong and so hot, it managed to reduce the house to ashes in less than an hour. Nothing was left but charred timbers and rumble. Rumble? Rumble. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing was left but charred timbers and rubble. And can I just side sidebar here? We're not making fun of the story. We're not making fun of the people in the story. We're making fun, we're of, making fun of Brittany. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we're going to be more specific. We're making fun of Brittany. Also, Easter. <laughs> I give you guys a lot to work with. <laughs> what wasn't left, you guys, in this burnt up rubble of ash? Are you asking us? No. <laughs> I'm thinking. What wasn't left? Any evidence of the five solder children having perished in the fire? This didn't stop the coroner from determining that the fire was caused by faulty wiring. Also, why is the coroner being the one to talk about how the fire was started? I don't, I don't know. There were no human remains found anywhere. And nobody is known to have reported the smell of burning flesh during or afterwards. Which I know is morbid, uh, but it is something... It's very distinctive. It is. And from five bodies... Yeah. It, you would have that distinctive smell, but nobody right. reported yeah. that being a thing. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah. Did you know at least two hours is how long it would take for a skeleton to disintegrate? And it would have to be at a much higher temperature yeah. than what a house fire could actually yeah. produce. So there's no scientific reason as to why there's no remains left. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, is that that doesn't happen. Well, Especially if it was Walt. Walty. <laughs> Faulty wiring, like that wouldn't cause a blaze hot enough so, to like completely disintegrate. Well, and remember, the solder home only burned for less than an hour. Yeah. Anyway, continuing on, George and Jenny had a hard time accepting that this fire was an accident. They were both convinced to their dying day that their children were alive somewhere. And they had evidence to back their claims up. For instance, a witness, a bus driver who stated that he had seen what he described as fireballs being thrown onto the roof of the house. I love fireball. Fireball whiskey? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Yes. Another witness, you guys, somewhat familiar with the Sauter family, stated to have seen the five children go by in a strange car while the fire was blazing. That seems, that seems lot, like, legit. 
and a lot of the claims do and there's so much you guys so much to uh-huh. this case and the couple would go as far as to put up a billboard near the site of their former home which featured photos of the five children and announced a $5,000 reward, which would eventually turn into a $10,000 reward. And for this time, wow, yeah, like that's a lot of money. The couple genuinely believed the children were abducted that Christmas Eve while taking care of the farm animals. And things were done deliberately to cover the traps of an abduction. Wow. A really crazy update came in 1968, 23 years after the fire. Jenny got an envelope in the mail from a city in Kentucky. There was no return address, and inside was a photograph of a young man, and written on the back was Louis Sauter. I love Brother Frankie. I, little boys, A90132, or possibly A90135. Authorities thought it was some kind of joke, but Georgia and Jenny believe it was their long-lost son. The photograph had similar features of their son, Louis, and the age was right. This is what they would expect Louis to look like as a 30-year-old adult. Wow. However, nothing ever came of this lead. George would die in 1969, and Jenny would die 20 years later. Their surviving relatives still hope to one day have the answers of what happened to their lost family all those years ago on Christmas Eve, 1945. I've heard this story many times, but I never really caught the detail of the house not being locked up and the curtains not being closed when they were yeah. specifically asked to do that mm-hmm. they never they were never in that attic mm-hmm. they obviously like yeah. the mom said abducted while they were out feeding yeah. the animal for sure all right so i'm gonna tell the next story i'm gonna get right into it so it was december 24th 2007 near carnation washington a small rural town 40 kilometers, that's 25 miles for our U.S. listeners, from Seattle. Um, Wayne and Judith Anderson were preparing to um, accept their children to their home for a festive Christmas Eve Mm, dinner. Around 5 p.m., their daughter Michelle Anderson and her boyfriend Joseph McEnroe walked the 200 yards to the house that was owned by Michelle's parents, Wayne and Judith. They walked to the house armed with handguns. Within 15 minutes of arriving, a phone call had been made to 911. The dispatcher said no one spoke. There was just a lot of yelling in the background before the call was disconnected. The dispatcher made two attempts to call back, but both went straight to voicemail. An officer was dispatched at around 519. So that was about 20 minutes after Michelle and her boyfriend arrived at her parents' home. Officers then arrived at the property at about 5.45, so that was another 25 minutes later. But they found the gate to the property was locked, and with the house not being in view from the gate, they just left. Oh, good. Yes. And in the report, they they wrote, and I quote, gate is locked and able to gain access. (laughs) Get off your ass. (laughs) No attempt made whatsoever. However, within the 25 minutes that it took for officers to arrive, Michelle had shot her father with a 9mm handgun, and then Joseph shot him with a 37 caliber Magnum. Both shots were to the head. Mm-hmm. Joseph then shot Judith Anderson twice. Doesn't specify where. Wow. Michelle and Joseph then dragged the body of Michelle's elderly parents to the sh- a shed in the backyard, tucked them away and returned to the house. A short time later, Michelle's brother Scott and his wife Erica Anderson arrived with two of their two children, aged six and three. Both Michelle and Joseph shot Scott and Erica. Then Joseph shot both the children. No, I I didn't want that. That's not where that was going. Yeah. On December 26th, when Judith did not show up to work, her co-worker, Linda Thiel, tried to call her cell phone and the home phone. With no answer, she knew right away something wasn't oh, right. No. She got in her car and left work. She drove out to the rural property to check on her friend. She was the unlucky person to discover the bodies. Oh, At the time, she only found the bodies of the Anderson's son, Joseph, his wife, Erica, and the two children. Right, because the parents were out in the shed. Yeah, yeah. the parents were out in the shed. Michelle and Joseph had planned to flee to Canada, 
but were arrested just two days later on suspicion of murder after they showed up at the crime scene. Oh my God. It didn't take long for investigators to get a confession. So I had to add this part. So I like, that's why I shortened the story of what all happened. Cause I mean, yeah. there's not much more to it than that, but I found in an article, they wrote about, um, the son, Scott, his wife, Erica, the 32-year-old woman, her husband lay dying, and she had been shot twice during the Christmas Eve ambush on her and her in-laws at their rural property incarnation. Still, she managed to crawl over the back of the couch and dial 911 on the cordless phone. So that would have been the 911 call. Yeah. Yeah. But before she had a chance to speak, according to a graphic court documents filed, Joseph McEnroe, armed with the 37 caliber Magnum handgun, walked up, pulled the phone from her hand, and popped the batteries out. Oh. McEnroe, according to these documents, allowed, and I quote, allowed, this is what he mm -hmm. said, Erica to huddle with her children before he shot her in the head. Oh my god, that is sickening. Yeah. It's absolutely disgusting. So McEnroe also, McEnroe also made sure to mention that he apologized to Erica. Oh, After wow. she pleaded for him not to shoot her, saying, she was saying, you don't have to do this. And according to these court papers, McEnroe recalled how he looked her, looked her in the eyes and said, yes, we do. McEnroe shot five-year-old Olivia Anderson in the head at very close range. Oh. He then turned to three-year-old Nathan Anderson, the last survivor in the home. The boy had picked up the batteries McEnroe had torn from the phone and discarded on the floor. And how old is he, sorry? Three years old. Holy yeah. crap. I know. It gets worse. It gets worse. So he held them up to McEnroe. But the batteries? The batteries, yeah. Oh. He's three, right? And McEnroe told detective the child gave him, quote, the look of complete comprehension as if he understood. Monroe then shot him in the head. Oh, my God. Yeah. That is gruesome. Yeah. So the motive for this, according to the court documents filed, were that Michelle Anderson was tired of everybody stepping on her and she had decided if her family didn't start showing her respect by december 24th that she would kill them all and that's what her and her boyfriend did jesus christ both joseph and michelle confessed to the murders they were found guilty on six counts of um aggravated first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison just narrowly missing the death penalty oh like they wanted to give them the death penalty, but yeah, I feel like the death penalty they, is made yeah, for, for people, people like, like them. them. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know that's a short one, but that is that's a tough one. To yeah, yeah, that's, really that's tough. why I decided to keep it short because oh, it's that's pretty much how it is. Uh, so yeah, Michelle and Michelle Anderson and her boyfriend Joseph McEnroe were also living on a trailer on her parents' property, which is why it was only a 200-yard walk right. from their home to her sense. parents. They then went back to their property. They were preparing to flee to Canada and then decided to walk up while in, like investigators were at the house investigating the crime scene. Oh and that's when they were arrested because they obviously like yeah we're doing some shady shit yeah for sure so yeah. that's that's the story of the 2007 it's so unfortunate yeah. that so, so many of these christmas time homicides involve children well, like you guys chill your, cool your tits yeah you know, grab a nog with a little bit of rum chill out investigators it's... said that they uncovered that there was possibly some sort of drama going on with the family with money and well property, when isn't there like... drama going on with family and yeah. when isn't money a thing yeah us normal people have figured out how to live a normal life without murdering our entire family but yeah see guys i told you my stories were really really short that's okay hi guys christy here i'm gonna take you to a small town called santa claus georgia 
Santa Claus, Georgia. I <laughs> shit you not, little elf. Is oh. this the home of Santa Claus? No, the he kind of left pole. pole, dummy. Oh god, this yeah, is his okay. vacation home. He's a okay. Okay, okay. See, not a dumb question. <laughs> so, um, and when I say small, I mean like in the 2010 census. This place had a population of 165 people. Oh, yikes. Yeah, it is like but a speck on the map. Oh, jeez. Right? I think I have that many people that work in my office. Right? Work. I am yeah, saying. Yeah. Maybe not that much, but. I have that many friends on Facebook. Oh, oh well, look at you. <laughs> I know, right? I yeah. have that many people on my Facebook I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I have that many people blocked on my Facebook. <laughs> This story takes place on December 4th, 1997. Um, this is a story about Jerry Scott Heedler, who is a piece of shit. <laughs> okay. <And> so <laughs> tell us how you really feel. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to tell you the story here. We're going to kind of go back to front a little bit. But um, so on December 4th in 1997, a Georgia couple um, who cared for foster children along with two of their own children were shot to death while they slept by an intruder who then took three other children from the home. Later, the children were found alive by a farmer along a country road about 30 miles away. The children said that one Jerry Heedler had kidnapped them as he fled the murder scene. Heedler was charged as well not just with the murder, but also with molesting one of the surviving girls miles away. Oof. So Jerry Scott Heedler, he is the perpetrator in this story, as we know. Um, Toons, Toombs County Sheriff Charles Durst said that Jerry Heedler, um, who's a man that's not related to any of the children, was arrested and charged to the killings. Charged with the killing, sorry. The dead, identified as Danny and Kim Daniels, their 16-year-old daughter and their 12-year-old son, were all shot in their beds as they slept. The kidnapped children were the couple's 10- and 8-year-old daughters and a 9-year-old foster child, who's also a girl. The girls were dropped off on the side of the road in Bacon County, two counties to the south. There's a Bacon County. There's a Bacon County, just no, two counties south of Santa Claus. Bacon. Yeah. A farmer found them and called authorities who alerted police in Toombs County. Left alive and at the blood-spattered home were a 10-month-old boy and a 5-year-old boy who was the brother of the 9-year-old foster girl. Oof. I know, it's a little confusing. Yeah. Information obtained from the surviving children of the Dasher Lane Massacre led investigators to Cherry Scott Heedler who the children knew as Scott Taylor for the murder of their foster parents and the two children. Heedler, 20 years old, was charged with murder, kidnapping, and burglary. The Daniels were residents of the curiously named town of Santa Claus, a community 70 miles west of Savannah, where the streets are named after reindeer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. So before the killings, Heedler had briefly lived with this family while they were while he was trying to overcome drug and alcohol problems. And according to his um, according to his mother, Heedler, who had dated Jessica Daniels, was distraught because his girlfriend had given birth to a stillborn baby two days earlier. Agents found Heedler hiding under his mother's house in Alma. According to testimony and hearings, Heedler said that he remembered the killings as a dream. Heedler, who had open heart surgery when he was just four years old, was placed in two foster homes because of poor supervision by his mother. His foster mother, when he was 11, had said that he had many imaginary friends and he also had a mouse that he carried around in his hand. Totally normal. Like a real mouse? Like, like a, a real mouse. Alive like a real live a mouse. dead? No, a real live mouse. Oh, a, live, a live mouse. Like a pet mouse. They just carried in his hand. Hmm. He was um he was also afraid of the dark um and he was afraid that a knife would come through the ceiling and cut him. Okay. In all fairness, I'm now afraid of that too. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought of it. But... Later, when later when he returned to his mother, he attended a school in Baxley for children with learning disabilities. He mutilated himself by picking at his skin until it bled. <sighs> oh. 
James Mesh, a forensic path- uh, psychologist, sorry, from Augusta, testified that Hedler suffered from a severe case of borderline personality disorder. Hmm. Probably. He said that Hedler had eight of the nine symptoms, including suicide attempts, outbursts of uncontrolled anger, and frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. On the, uh, sorry, on September 4th, Hedler was sentenced to death for the murders of the four members of the Daniels family. The execution date was set for between October 1st and October 8th, although um, the sentence will was automatically appealed by the Supreme Court of Georgia within 30 days. What a treat. Yeah. Wow. That's, my story. That's crazy. He sounds like a real stand-up guy. Yeah. I mean, his pet mouse and his scab picking. <laughs> Reminds me of... Uh... That movie, what's that movie? Green Mile. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mr. Jangles. Oh, yeah. Mr. Jangles. (laughs) I love that movie. Such a good movie. On to our fourth story. I bring to you the murder of Michelle O'Dowd. 67-year-old Michelle O'Dowd was a sweet older lady who is known in her community for being kind and generous. O'Dowd would invite her family friend, Patty Michelle White, who is 37, to live with her when she was down on her luck. The holiday seasons can be hard on a lot of people, financially, emotionally, all that jazz. And Patty was one victim of these circumstances. It's too bad, however, Patty had a more sinister plan in place. Too bad Patty had a more sinister plan, however, than just roasting chestnuts on the fire and singing Christmas carols by the tree. Michelle, being the sweet lady that she was, would trust Patty with her debit card and personal PIN number so she could run out for errands and groceries. It was the holiday season, after all, and Michelle really enjoyed spoiling all of her nieces, nephews, and grandchildren. Now I'm going to pause here for a second and just give a little PSA. Used to be an assistant branch manager at a bank. Don't ever, no matter who it is, don't ever, ever, ever give your personal pin to someone. Here is why. Unless they are a power of attorney, the second you admit to a bank that you've given your personal pin number out to someone, they will not help you get that money back. Mm-hmm. Because you've admitted that you've given them your pin. Because you so, don't fucked up. Protect yourself. Anyway, onwards. Michelle lived in a beautiful gated community in Jacksonville with space and holiday cheer to share. She worked with her twin brother, Phil, at his company, doing work in accounts receivable. When Michelle didn't show up for work on Friday, December 2nd, 2011, her brother would try calling her to see where she was. He could not reach her. Worried, he decided that he was going to go over to Michelle's residence to make sure that everything was okay. Phil would reach the front door of Michelle's home. The door was wide open, by the way, and he peered inside and the house looked ransacked, almost as though there had been a burglary. I'm going to say this. Phil, being a typical man, (laughs) enters the house. (laughs) No fear. No fear. No fear. But also, you know, it is his twin sister inside, so I do get that adrenaline too. But also... If you if you walk up to a house and the door is ajar and it looks like it's been broken into, probably just walk away and call the cops. Yeah. <laughs> right? Phil entered the house. He noticed that Michelle's car was still there. Her dog was still there. But there is no Michelle. He approached the Christmas tree. And that's when he sees a foot sticking out from behind some presents. Mm-hmm. He recognizes it as Michelle's foot. <laughs> that foot. I've seen that foot before. <laughs> oh no. Sir, can you identify this foot? Yes. That is my twin sister's foot. That's I've my seen, foot. I've seen that foot in the womb. Oh god. We're going to hell. Could you imagine a police lineup of feet? <laughs> I can't. Anyway, anywho. You depressed it. <laughs> he put us his foot. Oh, we should not be laughing at this. No, we shouldn't be going And out. then he reaches down and touches her ankle softly, realizing she was cold to the touch. Now you guys feel like assholes for laughing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So now I'll laugh awkwardly at my assholeness. I'm ashamed. Taking a closer look, he realizes that she has been badly beaten 
and there's been a towel placed over her head. Oh, no. Michelle had been murdered, beaten mercilessly and strangled, left under the Christmas tree, along with gifts she had purchased meant for her nieces and Jesus. nephews. Oh, Lord. At first, authorities think this is a break and enter gone wrong. The crime scene shows an obvious struggle. But later that day, on December 2nd, Michelle's debit card would be used in two different locations surrounding her home. It would be two days later, after looking at security footage, that authorities would discover the person with Michelle's debit card. It was Patty White, roommate and family friend of Michelle. Patty had beaten her and strangled her over money. All that was missing from the house was Michelle's debit card. Why she felt it necessary to put Michelle's body under the tree, I don't know. But how morbid, morbid. Mm -hmm. right? How morbid of her to think that she could stage a crime scene like this and get away with it. Police used CCTV footage and other footage from security cameras to track the vehicle that Patty was in when she was using the ATM. She was arrested two days later after being spotted and pulled over in South Carolina without incident. (laughs) Funny enough, you guys, she was with her mother at the time she was arrested. So Merry Christmas, Mom. I'm a murderer. (laughs) Patty would later plead guilty to her crimes in court and ultimately was sentenced to 45 years in prison on October 14th, 2013. Bye, Patty. Bye, Patty. (sighs) Fucking bitch. I'm sorry I laughed. I'm sorry too. I'm just, sorry too. <laughs> again, we're not making fun of the victim of the story. It's just the way that Brittany read out. <laughs> you recognize that foot. Like, that's where it comes from. Like, you really make it too easy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm you sorry, st- not sorry. I am who I am. <laughs> oh, boy. You guys invited oh, me. Oh, Lord. And you guys, like, it has been a long ass week for all of us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, we're all tired yeah. we're all like stretched so thin i think yeah I don't i've think, also like, had a holidays. couple of glasses of wine yeah Brittany has been drinking it's fine <laughs> it's fine all right so i'm gonna tell the next story oh my god this is not story time i'm gonna tell you guys the next case. <laughs> <piece. laughs> like sorry guys <sighs> the next case that i have chosen is the case of the downtown posse murders so marvelous keen yes his name is marvelous yes marvelous keen his girlfriend lauren taylor and two other young adults heather matthews and her boyfriend demarcus smith demarcus they were part of a gang that was led by Marvelous that referred to themselves as the Downtown Posse. Over three days, starting December 24th, 1992, in Dayton, Ohio, the Downtown Posse, as they preferred to themselves, went on a killing spree. So on Christmas Eve, they were running short on money. So Laura Taylor came up with the idea to visit an acquaintance of hers who she believed would pay them for sex. This acquaintance of hers had a job as a car salesman. Mm. Oh. And she said that he always had cash on him. And Us, yes. quote, unquote, salesman. Salesman, <laughs> yes, car salesman, who always seemed to have cash on him. So she believed that he would pay them for sex. And on, on that Christmas Eve day... In 1992, Lauren called him up. His name was Joseph Wilkerson. So she arranged with Joseph Wilkerson to have an orgy with herself, Marvelous, and their friend Heather. Isn't that just a threesome? Foursome. Foursome. There's four of them. Oh, there's mathing wrong. Yes, there was four of them. So it would have been Joseph Wilkerson, uh, Laura Taylor, Marvelous Keen, and their friend Heather Matthews. Okay, I guess they can classify that as an orgy. And so he agreed. So she wasn't wrong about that. When they arrived at Joseph's house, they immediately tied him to his headboard in his bedroom with an electrical cord and then began ransacking his home looking for any valuables that they could find. While they were doing this, they came across a 32 caliber gun. So Marvelous took this 32 and he shot Joseph in the chest while he was still tied to the bed. Defense Taylor. Sickening. Yeah. Yeah. 
Taylor, Laura Taylor, then put a 25 caliber gun to his head and shot him a second time. They ransacked his home, making off with a pathetic booty of a microwave oven. Booty. 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 <laughs> booty, 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 booty. Bucket everywhere. <laughs> they made off with a microwave oven. Oh, my God. A small TV. A phone. A curling iron. And a blow dryer. Oh, oh my God. Is it like, like five essentials of Sally's, you guys? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Five essentials of a single woman moving out. Right. <laughs> So this gave Laura a brilliant idea, and she declared, let's get some drama in our lives. And they stole Joseph Wilkerson's car. They picked up Heather Matthews' boyfriend, Demarcus Smith, and they went on the hunt for more victims. Because that sounds like a party. Yeah. Like, fuck. Yeah. So far, they haven't gotten any money, and the whole point of this was to get money. Right. Just wanted to add that. As they were driving around in the stolen vehicle, they found an 18-year-old Danita Galette, a stranger to all of them, talking on a payphone. If you hopefully you know what a payphone is. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you don't know what a payphone we'll, we'll is. We'll post a picture of it on our socials. It hurts <laughs> if you don't know what a payphone is. Oh boy. So she was talking on a payphone on Neil Avenue. They pulled over. And Marvelous walked up to the phone booth and pointed his gun at her through the glass. And he said, and I quote, Merry Christmas, bitch. They then stripped her of her jacket, her Fila tennis shoes, and they took a backpack of hers. They then fired nine shots into the booth. Jesus. To a complete stranger. Yeah, as Danita begged for her life. They found 50 cents in her pocket. Oh my god. They then decided to go visit Nicole Matthews' ex-boyfriend. So she called him up and he agreed to see her. They arrived at the meeting point and they shot him four times just in the leg. I don't mean to say just in the leg, but they shot him four times in the leg. And he managed to escape to a neighbor's house. The posse then cho- decided to return to the home of their first victim, Joseph Wilkerson, where they decided to have that as their home base for Ew. their killing spree. And they went there just for the night to yeah. sleep. The following morning, so Christmas Day, Laura then convinced her ex-boyfriend, Richmond Maddox, to go for a drive with her. He arrived and he picked her up at the Wilkerson house in his car. They began to drive. But unbeknownst to him, Marvelous, Demarcus, and Heather were tailing them in the stolen vehicle of Joseph. Along this drive, Richmond noticed the car that was following them. And he attempted to lose them by slamming on, like, to hitting the gas and trying to, you know, shake them off. But Laura pulled her pulled a gun, pointed it at his head, and pulled the trigger while the vehicle was still moving. Oh she then bailed from the moving vehicle before it crashed on Benton Avenue. Tuck wow. and roll. <laughs> that Sorry. was enough excitement for them that day. Because yeah. They waited until the next day, Boxing Day, Holy to continue their chaotic, maddening rampage. They entered a shortstop mini market on first on West Fifth Avenue, where a young Sarah Abraham was working. They shot her twice in the head. They also shot a witness once in the hand and in the stomach before making off with the money from the register, a total of forty-four dollars. Oh wow. God! So you're up to forty-four fifty. Yeah. <laughs> so they made their first like, <laughs> big mistake. Um, because obviously, I, I didn't say Richmond Maddox obviously didn't survive the car crash. Right. They left a witness. Yeah. The uh, the other patron of the Mini Mart right. that they shot in the hand and the stomach survived. Yeah. Uh, so they decided to, moving around the city, they began to switch vehicles. So they were stealing vehicles along the way, switching license plates. They were trying to elude the police because now that they've had a witness. Yeah. Um, the police were kind of on to them. 
they then became, started to become paranoid that other members of their downtown posse, mm-hmm. who so far hadn't been involved in any of these killings, may implicate them in these murders. Mm-hmm. So they picked up two of their own, a Wendy Cottrell and Marvin Washington. They, you know, just were like, hey, let's hang out. Let's grab some booze and let's go for a joyride. Yeah. And they were driving around. And at, uh, after they had killed Sarah Abraham at the shortstop, uh, they picked up Wendy and Marvin. They bought some beer and some wine. 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 <laughs> Drove around until Marvel- Marvelous. It's so hard for me to think of that as a name. Marvelous, <laughs> Marvelous. declared that he had to pee. They pulled over in a gravel road of road of some sort of a like concrete mm. or like gravel like company where they crush rocks oh, okay, and yeah. stuff. Like a gravel pit. Yeah, yeah. like a gravel pit. And he then got out and he rounded the car and held a gun to Wendy and Marvin Marvin and demanded that they get out of the car. He then executed them behind a dirt pile. Wendy Jesus. and Marvin were marked as the fifth and sixth victims of this killing rampage. They just left them there. Wow. They got in their car and drove away just because they were worrying that yeah. they were like, bragging. Somebody's going to implicate yeah. us, so let's just pick these two. Out yeah, of they were bragging like, yeah. to their posse, which was a bunch of, like... No, and I bet internally, really, stuff. they're starting to freak out more and yeah, more, absolutely. more and more, which is making them more and more crazy. Yeah. yeah. So once they left the gravel yard... They drove up on a woman that was at a gas station airing, airing up the tires of her. It was a Dodge that caravan or something. Uh-huh. I didn't write down the type of the vehicle. All I remember was it was a Dodge and it was a van. So she was airing up her tires. She might have become the sixth victim, but she ran. Oh, it was a Dodge Shadow. Here we go. Huh. She ran when her Dodge Shadow was, they when they stole her Dodge Shadow at gunpoint. Yeah. She took off and she managed to get away. Yeah. Around 72 hours after the first killing, so 72 hours after they murdered Mm -hmm. Joseph Wilkerson, Dayton Police Sergeant John Hoover eyed a suspicious vehicle. That same Dodge Shadow that they had stolen from the woman at the gas station. Mm -hmm. In the Dodge Shadow was Marvelous, Laura, Heather, and DeMarcus. They ran the place as cops do. Yeah. And when the registration didn't come back to a Dodge Shadow, because they were going around changing plates, units closed in on the vehicle. After so much violence and such a chaotic, random, like spontaneous three days, the capture of the posse was completely uneventful. DeMarcus did try to run. He ran into a house nearby, but was quickly captured. And Marvelous Laura and Heather were all taken into custody without incident. Good. The Dayton Four were charged with multiple felonies, including capital murder. Mm -hmm. As juveniles, though, DeMarcus and Laura, who were both teenagers at the time, were immune from capital punishment. Heather cut a deal, testifying against the other three after prosecutors agreed not to seek the her execution for mm-hmm. the murders but keen was not spared the death penalty on july 21st 2009 he was executed by lethal injection marvelous yes marvelous. well many of their victims family members watched when he was asked if he wished to make a final statement the condemned killer said no i have no words the other three are still in prison to this day with no chance of parole. Hmm. Crazy. Wow. Yeah. Fucking crazy kids. That well, leads me to a quick question for you two shit. ladies. Out of curiosity. Like, let's just say that we were in the States and, you know, somebody we knew or didn't know murdered our family and they were on death row and it was their execution date. Would you go and watch them be executed? Yes or no? I totally Ooh. would. Yeah. Yeah. Morbid curiosity. And Absolutely. Like, I think I would too. I need to make sure, like, I need to make sure that motherfucker's dead. Yeah. And I think a cheers is required here since, because this is why we're all friends. Yeah. yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Marvelous. 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 <laughs> all right. My next one uh, is about. The murder of one Alan Williamson on Christmas Day. And this story takes place in 
Edinburgh, Scotland. Edinburgh. 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 Scotland. Um, it reads Edinburgh, but I've looked into that it's Edinburgh. 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 It's someplace I've never been. Okay. Oh, there we go. Scotland. Scotland. That is not a Scottish accent. <laughs> that was not. I am so sorry. Melissa Young is 37 years old, and there's not much I could find about her childhood or upbringing. What is known about her is that she is a transgender woman who used to work at a sex sauna. And I only mention this because if you Google her name, that's pretty much what comes up in every headline there is about her. And there's not a whole lot of headlines, but um, it's a highlight, a highlighted fact about her. Right. So did you put privacy settings on when you were doing your research or... <laughs> I, um, incognito mode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I always do. Um, so Melissa's Xbox, uh, Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Woo! Melissa's ex-boss at the sex sauna had told the media stories about what it was like to work with Melissa. Um, he was a gay man who goes by the name of Cher, and he told of her troubled childhood and a descent into violence, crime, addiction, and religious mania. Now, he said, quote, she had run-ins with all the girls. They were all frightened of her. She would start these fights because she had an inferiority complex, end quote. Melissa had a close neighbor named Alan Williamson with whom she had an interesting relationship with. It wasn't a romantic relationship, but their entire dynamic was toxic and a little bit crazy. So Melissa had lived in an apartment complex or a flat next to <laughs> Williamson, who was 47 years old, and they had a little bit of history. So six months before the slaying, uh, Melissa Young had locked Alan in her flat and threatened him with a knife, <laughs> scaring him so much that he jumped from her first floor balcony to escape. Oof. His, yeah. But first floor balcony to escape. So how long, how far of a jump was that then? That's probably like, um, I mean, I don't know. It's probably like nine Units feet. of measurement. I have no idea. So don't ask me about that. But like for your curiosity, I would say like the neighbors above you jumping down. Yeah, so like yeah. nine or ten feet, right? Because yeah. ceilings are usually nine or yeah, ten feet. Exactly. Well, that's in Canada. Nine yeah. or ten feet roof, and yeah. it would be from the distance. Of... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Still, I'm not eager to jump out a window of any height. So on Christmas Day, Williams had visited Melissa in her flat to purchase Valium from her. Melissa had off. Yeah. Valium. The good stuff. Yeah. 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 So Melissa had offered him some Christmas gifts at this time as well. A pair of unisex trainers, which are shoes, um, and a raunchy calendar. Oh. Yeah. Ooh, so maybe it was like one of those hot firemen. So we got yeah. shoes, a sexy oh, calendar, and Valium. Yep. It's probably gross. Right on. We, it was the boss that was gay, not the neighbor. Yes. So, also, well, we saying, don't know the neighbor's sexual orientation, but like, yeah, anyways, not important. Probably not um, naked humans. What is important, though, is that Williams had refused the gifts. He didn't want them. And so Ooh. Melissa stabbed him 29 times. Okay. As oh. one does. Of course. Yeah. When your gift gets rejected. Yeah. 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 Not just you need to ask for a gift it. receipt or something like that. But yeah, like, no, just... no, just dead ass stab somebody 29 times. That's a yeah. lot. That's not excessive at all. There's got to be, like, more to that story, yeah. for sure, because that's very personal. For sure, for sure. So, Young admitted during proceedings that she wouldn't have stabbed Mr. Williamson if he had only accepted the gifts. She claimed at the trial that the archangel St. Michael had taken mm. over her body and used her as an instrument of God to punish the, quote, air quotes, unclean demon. And this is the more to the story. She mm -hmm. batshit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so her legal team argued that the sentence that had been imposed on young was excessive i'm sorry but stabbing somebody 29 times because they refused your christmas your shitty christmas gift is excessive yeah like come on so appeal judges ruled that lord boyd had actually had acted legally lord boyd's who basically sent on this sentence right yeah so he's like no 
this is this is great in a written judgment issued on tuesday by the appeal court judge lady clark of calton wrote quote we consider the circumstances of this case including the number of knife wounds the location and depth of the wounds the sustained brutality of the unprovoked attack and the absence of remorse and the appellate's previous criminal record clearly demonstrate that the punishment part selected by the judge is not excessive the punishment part is necessary to satisfy the requirements for retribution and deterrence for these reasons we refuse the appeal end quote can't disagree with that honestly no it's such the the like motive behind it sorry i did air quotes the quote motive unquote is just it's just insane like something so like tiny would would like set you off like that you should not but how utterly disturbing is it that that's all it takes for people oh absolutely basically nothing other than them being unstable and angry and she there's there's history like i obviously again short story yes more into it there's history of like um from her upbringing obviously like she's she's a trans transgender woman and her entire life she's never felt accepted like yeah as the person she is and the skin that she is so there's always been some level of rejection that she's felt from people so Absolutely. this is just like another form of rejection to yeah. her yeah which is like just you know it's, yeah it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Which I'm not thing. saying that that justifies a means to no, end. No, absolutely. Right? Well, like, exactly. That's why we have advocate. Like, yeah. counselors and yeah. psychiatrists. Because people, just go work it out. Talk out your issues. You don't yeah. need to just... Smoke mad- some weed. Yeah. Smoke some weed. You Apparently don't need- she did smoke a lot of weed. I don't yeah. Know, but-, but you're smoking much more than just... Yeah. The devil's lettuce. <laughs> yeah. If you're stabbing someone 29 times because because they didn't take your gift. Yeah. Oh, because <laughs> like the religious figure was telling you oh, to. Oh yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Saint my archangel. Saint Mike, Archangel Michael. Michael. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. That's cray cray. Yeah, yeah. That's far so too cool. easy to bring religion into murder. Isn't it is. It? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so guys, that wraps up day one of our 12 days of Christmas. And we'll be coming back. Well, at actually, oh, oh, it wraps up days one through six That's of the true. twelve days. That wraps yes. yeah. <laughs> packaged it all in one little package. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for listening. Um, again, a little bit less structured of an episode for you. Um, yeah, just a little the holidays. Bit more fun We're letting loose a little bit. And I, again, I've had wine. If you guys <laughs> want to hear more of these stories, you can find us on our socials and just let us know. Uh, so you can find us on TikTok at Homebrew Murder Crew. Find us on Instagram at Homebrew Murder Crew. You can also find us on Facebook at Homebrew Murder Crew. Also, if you want to email us, you can reach us at homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you tomorrow night with part two. Bye. Bye. Bye.